This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Thubol, grateful to have you join us this morning. On the show today, bankrolled by Israel, Papua New Guinea opens its new embassy in the holy city of Jerusalem. We made the conscious choice for us to call ourselves Christian. Paying respect to God will not be complete without recognizing that Jerusalem is the universal capital of the people and nation of Israel. Australia's parliament to ratify a new treaty to crack down on billions in global fishery subsidies. This, this treaty arrangement is an opportunity to eliminate harmful subsidies. Uh, it is a good first step. Uh, it, it, has, it has taken a long time to bring to life. And we look at how one Samoan NGO is helping to shift mindsets when it comes to disabilities. It's, it's satisfying. It, it's not easy. There's a huge learning, and the learning is not only on their part, huge learning on our part as well, but we're learning how to communicate better, and all our staff are learning sign language. We've got a few, a couple actually, who have become really, really good. For any of these stories, simply type in ABC Pacific Beat into your search engine and feel free to share these stories across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie the Bowl and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly... Tonga's opposition MPs are crying foul after the country's Prime Minister defeated a no-confidence vote. 46 reasons were listed as to why the Prime Minister should go, but in the end, it wasn't enough. Marion Kupu and Nukualofa with more. For two days, Tonga came to a standstill. Some were glued to live streams of Parliament, others were on social media waiting for updates. At stake was the leadership of Prime Minister Celsi Sovaleni. The Kingdom of Tonga has never removed a Prime Minister through a motion of no confidence, and history would repeat itself, with Sovaleni defeating the motion by 14 votes to 11. I'm very happy about uh uh, the vote of confidence, uh, it, it, not just me, but the government. Uh, so very happy about it. In the last couple of weeks, it's been, uh, yes, uh, stressful, a lot of work. Uh, but uh, very happy about the vote of confidence in us continuing as a government. But the opposition MPs are crying foul. Biveni Bikala says there were procedural errors in how the vote took place. I am not satisfied because of the outcome. I'm, I'm, I'm dissatisfied because of the process. Eh? My, my dissatisfaction is solely based on the process eh, that we went through. I, I, I just, the fact that we were not allowed to debate on the issue is a, is a, is a, is a disappointment, disappointment for me. They had submitted 46 reasons why the Prime Minister should be removed from office. Each point was raised during the motion with a response from the Prime Minister. But after almost two days, the Speaker of Parliament opted to head straight into a vote rather than a debate. I basically think that they did not put enough time. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a saying, and I quote, uh, education costs money. But it will cost us more if we don't. Eh? So 
it may be time consuming but it's a process that we must go through to ensure that that the rule of law the constitution is you know one of the things that I really wanted to brace today that they did not allow me to do is to for me this is about confidence eh? If I lost my confidence, I should know, I should be able to say why. But the Prime Minister says the deliberations were running far too long. They, they, they had, uh, you know, 14 motions or petitions. We, we responded, provided an answer. I believe people then can actually make up their mind about, you know, uh, the, the points or the allocation they put forward and the answers that we put forward. I, it's time to, for, for Toba to move on, not just Parliament, for Toba, because everything was on a standby because... We were actually focusing just on the, the vote of no confidence. And I think it's time for Tonga to move forward. And that's why uh, it, it's time to actually vote on whether they have confidence in my government or not. Despite the political differences, Prime Minister Sovaleni says he plans to work closely with the MPs who had attempted to remove him. Well, I, I, we, we can work in isolation or we can work together. And, and I, I, I choose always to actually work together, you know. Uh, we, we may have different feelings and different ideas about politics, but end of the day we're working for the, you know, betterment of Tonga. How can we actually work together to actually develop uh, Tonga? And, and that's still uh, what I aim to do. That's Tonga's Prime Minister, Siasi Sovaleni, ending that report from Marion Kupu and Nukualofa. Papua New Guinea has opened an embassy in the city of Jerusalem, one of just five countries to do so. But there are claims Israel is engaging in checkbook diplomacy, with Papua New Guinea saying Israel is paying for the embassy's operation. The ABC's Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn, reports from Jerusalem. In the foyer of a commercial building in West Jerusalem, Israeli diplomats mingle with leaders from Papua New Guinea's business, religious and political communities. They're watching a live feed beamed from a small office 12 floors above them, the new PNG embassy. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape declares it an historic diplomatic event. We're here to give respect to the people of Israel to the fullest. Papua New Guinea has now become the fifth country to open an embassy in the city of Jerusalem, along with the United States, Honduras, Kosovo and Guatemala. The status of Jerusalem remains one of the biggest flashpoints in the long-running Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Israel deems it as its capital, and Palestinians want East Jerusalem as their capital of a future Palestinian state. But Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister says his country is side with Israel's claim, even though six years ago PNG voted at the United Nations to condemn the US for recognising Jerusalem as the capital. We made the conscious choice for us to call ourselves Christian, paying respect to God will not be complete without recognising that Jerusalem is the universal capital of the people and nation of Israel. Prime Minister Marape says the new agreement will strengthen trade and investment relationships for his country. And he says Israel is so far footing the bill for the embassy operations. For the first three years, uh, the nation of Israel's uh, 
paying for the cost of the embassy. Alon Liel, a former Director General of Israel's Foreign Affairs Department, describes it as checkbook diplomacy. It's crazy. I was a diplomat for 30 years and never heard a story that the hosting country is paying for the foreign embassy. Along with the new embassy, PNG has confirmed it will now lend its vote to Israel at the United Nations. It's a win for Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who gains international diplomatic support on several fronts. I think it's fitting that a state and a people so uh, deeply committed to these values uh, do what you just did, that is open an embassy in Jerusalem the first Asian Pacific country to do so. Another Pacific nation, Fiji, has also committed to a Jerusalem-based embassy and confirmed Israel has offered financial assistance for its operations. The ABC's Middle East correspondent there, Alison Horn. Now, Australia is expecting the World Trade Organisation to deliver a landmark treaty that will crack down on billions of dollars of subsidies for illegal fishing next month. Australia's parliament yesterday tabled a report recommending ratification of the agreement on fishery subsidies, making it illegal for governments to give subsidies to fishing fleets engaging in illegal fishing. Two-thirds of the WTO's 164 members will need to ratify the treaty, and Australia's hoping Pacific nations will come to the table. Australia's Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres spoke to reporter Mackenzie Smith. What this agreement does, uh, it's a world first agreement, is make uh, subsidies for illegal fishing uh, unlawful. Uh, That means that WTO participant countries, 164 countries, will be required to cease making subsidies for illegal fishing and overfishing. We know that there's about $35 billion worth of subsidies for fishing around the world, and more than $20 billion of that is is distortionary and harmful. Uh, This article, this instrument from the World Trade Organisation, is a good first step towards eliminating Uh, illegal fishing and overfishing. How exactly do these subsidies end up going towards illegal fishing? Fishing uh, countries around the world, uh, many of them engage in subsidies for their fishing fleets. Many of those fishing fleets are engaged in fishing activity in the Pacific. Uh, Much of that is legal. Uh, Much of that is um, agreed to by the participant countries in the Pacific, but some of it is not. Some of it is illegal overfishing that threatens the sustainability of fishing stocks that are a crucial asset, um, both in in environmental terms and food security terms for Pacific states. Now, now this, this treaty arrangement is an opportunity to eliminate harmful subsidies. Uh, it is a good first step. Uh, it, it, has, it has taken a long time to bring to life. Uh, And I was really pleased to be part of the Australian delegation at the last World Trade Organisation where we seized this opportunity and the Pacific really stood up in a coordinated way and fought really hard for this set of changes. It has been championed by um, the World Trade Organisation Director General Ngozi Okonji-Iweala. She she has uh, been fighting hard. Uh, working with countries to make sure 
that we get the requisite number of uh, ratifications that bring this treaty into force. It will make a real difference for fishing stocks in the Pacific. It is not the only step, of course, that needs to be undertaken. There is much more work uh, that uh, we need to do together to protect Pacific fishing stocks, but it is a very good first step. Are Pacific nations on board with this uh, treaty? There is strong agreement across the Pacific uh, on uh, delivering this as the first step uh, for the World Trade Organisation in, in eliminating uh, illegal subsidies. Um, both uh, Each country has its own ratification process. Uh, some of them are more complex than others. It is a, it is a legal process. It, Australia, the, the tabling of uh, this treaty in the Australian Parliament is the final step in our ratification process. Uh, Fiji is also very close to ratification uh, as well. Um, there is There are nearly 50 countries who have uh, ratified this agreement already, uh, and there is a very high expectation that at a senior meeting, senior level meeting in Geneva in a month or so, that many more countries will arrive with their articles of ratification in their briefcases and we will be much closer uh, to, to achieving the number of ratifications that are required to bring the treaty into force. Uh, we, we, are, we are determined to keep working uh, with the countries in our region uh, in collaboration to drive uh, this treaty and its ratification, uh, but also to engage in the next steps that are required to deliver, uh, to deliver um, uh, you know, better outcomes in terms of Pacific Island fishing stocks. That was Australia's Assistant Trade Minister, Tim Ayres, speaking to Mackenzie Smith. Meanwhile, fisheries officials in the Pacific are meeting in Papua New Guinea. Justin Ilakani, Managing Director of PNG Fisheries Authority, spoke with Belinda Cora about what's on the agenda at the Tuna Fisheries Forum in Kokopo. We have managed this resource really well for the last four decades or so. Why don't we also cooperate in like manner in optimally maximizing economic returns from this similar resource? So we facilitated, Papua New Guinea facilitated and took the lead in bringing all our fisheries ministers to Kokopo to discuss inclusive ways where we can jointly work together for a consorted or a combined growth, you know, for, for in developing this resource in the region so that our people in the Pacific can benefit, you know. Now in the region you hear about the, the, the blue continent, right? And the blue continent is comprised of the Pacific Island countries. And we, as uh, as an outcome of that Kokopo uh, meeting, we came up with a communique that will be elevated to the forum leaders' level in November, where the leaders will endorse, note and endorse for us to lead that process to mobilize support from all of our membership within the region to, to address these two important, uh, important issues facing us, including uh, climate change. For Papua New Guinea and for the region, climate change is an everyday thing. We are seeing it happening. And it is it will no doubt affect the potential revenue that and the economic benefits that we've been generating from this resource for the last forty years or so. Justin Ilakani there, Managing Director of PNG Fisheries Authority. Stay tuned for our news wrap up next with producer Evan Wasuka.
That's right. It is that time of the morning to go through the news headlines from across the Pacific. So joining us this morning to do that is Pacific Beat producer Evan Wasuka. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Aggie. Well, hey, look, we get into it. I believe there's a cabinet reshuffle in Samoa. What's going on in Apia? That's right, Aggie. So Prime Minister Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa has announced a cabinet reshuffle and the appointment of new ministers. The Samoan Observer newspaper is reporting that uh, Mulipola Anarosa Ale Molio has been demoted from the Ministry of Finance and is now looking after the Ministry of Women, Community and Social Development. Now, according to the Observer, this is Fiamme's first cabinet reshuffle since coming into power almost two years ago. Um, the paper is also reporting that the appointment of two, the two new cabinet ministers is provided for under the Constitution and according to Fiamme, this that the cabinet should be made up of 15 ministers. Now, as part of this reshuffle, the, cab- the prime minister is also taking on the, the tourism portfolio, while the former minister, Tooyalos Sulusulu Cedric Schuster, remains the minister for natural resources and environment. Lea Tinuwen Sooyalo is now the minister for public enterprise. And Liotta Laki Lamo Sitele is now the Minister for Commerce, Industry and Labour. So, yeah, a bit of a mix and match over there happening in Samoa. Uh, but, yeah, interesting times in Apia. Absolutely. Uh, we head to Vanuatu where a group of sailors were attempting to circumnavigate uh, the globe on a catamaran had to be rescued because of a shark or shark problems after leaving Vanuatu. That's right, Aggie. So the Australian Associated Press is reporting that these three sailors had to be rescued by Australian authorities because they came under attack from sharks. Uh, so they had left Vanuatu about a week ago and they were heading towards Cairns uh, when this uh, incident happened. Now, these were sailors from Europe. There was a Russian, there was a Frenchman. And uh sounds like a bit of a joke, but I mean, like a classic joke. But yeah, so these three um, European sailors are on board this uh, catamaran and they were sailing and when they were uh, hit, uh, attacked by sharks, basically, and they had to call in for a rescue. So they were on board the Tion, which is a nine meter catamaran, and they were just about 800 kilometers southeast of Cairns when they uh, had to call in French authorities. Um, uh, not French, sorry, Australian authorities. Uh, they said their boat had started to sink uh, because of the damage from the hulls from repeated shark attacks. Now, the cargo ship, the Dugong Ace, uh, helped to retrieve the trio before the Kent's Challenger rescue aircraft arrived at the scene. Uh, so this this vest, this catamaran is part of a Russian expedition that's supposed to circumnavigate the globe, and it's part of uh, the Russian Geographic Society. Um, they've had some trouble in the past, actually. So they've been on this journey trying to circle the world, but they've had problems before. Uh, they actually got stuck on Easter Island after Easter Island after their uh, vessel was disabled in the massive storm of uh, South America. And they had to spend a, a, a lot of time on East Island fixing up their craft before they finally ended up in Vanuatu and they were heading over to Australia when, well, sharks attacked. I'm wondering whether or not it's a third time lucky because if this has happened before, I'm not too sure we want to see this expedition again. Yeah, I don't uh, know what's left of the vessel. I mean, I think they were taken off. So Wow. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go to Japan, though, where Australia is doing some publicity of its own to reduce concerns about marine life at Fukushima. So just to set the context, we know that the Fukushima nuclear wastewater release happened. Um 
So there's a video here that's coming up, but we know the release happened. There's been concerns since that uh, the release happened. We've seen China impose a ban on marine products from Japan uh, because of the release of the nuclear wastewater, the treated wastewater that is. And there's also been com- concerns domestically within Japan about that uh, the release. We also had it on NewsRap the other day about PNG fisheries officials wanting to have their own marine and fish stocks regularly tested because of the release of the uh, the wastewater. Um, so this is the next uh, development, I suppose. Uh, we've got this video from the Australian Embassy in Japan. Let's uh, play it, and I'll just uh, translate underneath. So we support Fukushima Produce. Today at the embassy, we are enjoying fish and chips made from fish caught in Fukushima. Australians love fish and chips. At the Australian embassy, Tokyo, we continue to use produce from Fukushima. Fresh Fukushima halibut is perfect for fish and chips. So that's the translation for that, Aggie. And so that's the this video out from the Australian Embassy in uh, Japan. Uh, it's starting to circulate on social media. We'll see what the reaction is from the Pacific. But, um, yeah, certainly interesting times. Uh, the other day we also had a statement from the Melanesian Spearhead Group uh, also raising concerns and doubts about the safety of the Fukushima wastewater release. But it's still certainly lots of debate um, as the slow release continues. Yeah, I did watch that video and it uh, seems very interesting, <laughs> a little bit funny, but yeah. Uh, let's head and end off on sport here, though. The World Cup, it does start this weekend, but there's some bad news for Fiji. Indeed, Aggie, yes. So Fiji were on the ultimate uh, Dream World Cup run. They were heading into the World Cup this weekend. They were undefeated so far this year. They had beaten Tonga. They'd been Samoa, Japan uh, in the Pacific Nations Cup. And just the other week, they slayed the ultimate giants of rugby England at Twickenham, nonetheless. Yeah? So one of the standouts for Fiji has been Caleb Munts. He's the fly half. Now, he he was part of the Druas, Fijian Drua squad. That's the Super Rugby Pacific squad um, uh, who they've been developing over the past couple of years. And he was really starting to shine. But um, yesterday, um, news came out and the Fiji Rugby issued a statement that uh, Caleb Munson suffered serious injury at training to his knee and will now have to miss the full World Cup campaign. Um, so that news of that injury first broke early yesterday morning on the sports website, taivovo.com. Initially, it was rejected by Fiji Rugby, but then later on in the day, the statement official statement came out from the flying Fijians coach Simon Raiwalui that Mans was indeed injured and he's out of the picture for the World Cup. So it's a big blow for Fiji. Uh, their, their match is coming up next week. They're up against Wales, which is a, one of the strong teams. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Fiji squad is made up of draw players, so it does have a bit of depth. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what or who Fiji turns to to fill that fly-half position, which is quite an uh, important part in the team, which is like the playmaker, like the linchpin and how the team will play out. So, yeah, interesting times for Fiji, probably one of the stronger Pacific teams heading into the Rugby World Cup. So they've got Wales coming up in their pool, and they also have Australia. 
So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I look forward to it. And look, even with one Fijian down, <laughs> I still believe the team is quite strong. So uh, we are definitely supporting our Pacific teams for the Rugby World Cup. Evan, thank you very much for our news wrap this morning. Uh, to everyone else, you've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. We head to Samoa now, where a non-for-profit group is one of the driving forces in the island nation to try and shift mindsets by employing people with a disability. The group Women in Business Development employs a handful of staff with a disability, including physical disabilities, deafness, blindness and Down syndrome. Dubrovka Volita reports. Samoan Yulai Yulai has had a physical disability for a decade after an illness. Some of the wheelchair on uh, 2013, well, uh, especially for people uh, using wheelchair, it's uh, very uh, difficult for us to move around. While he had a job, he had to book a taxi each day to and from work. With much of his salary going towards his taxi fare, he could not make ends meet. He decided to quit his job and start farming his land. But farming in a wheelchair was hard and he knew he needed support. They bring the seed women and business and then uh, they give away to disability members. So that's the reason why uh, I request to them for uh, the help and then they put their hands and uh, help me for uh, bringing some seeds. With support to build a greenhouse and a cement path leading to boxes full of fruits and vegetables, he now sells his produce in markets and sends his daughter to school. He's among a number of farmers, weavers and other people with a disability who are getting help from the group Women in Business Development. While some of the members have worked with the group for some time, the idea for a full inclusion program came to them during the pandemic. So we decided we'd bring few people with disabilities to work with us on making the soap because we make soap here in our little factory. Adi Mai Malanga Tafunai is the group's executive director. What happened after that was we hired uh, the young girl who was deaf. She was uh, so good at what she was doing. And it, that's how it started. And now we have five people who are deaf on our staff, uh, one who is blind, a man with a physical disability, a young girl with Down syndrome. Ms. Tafunai, who's also the chair of the Australian-funded Women in Leadership Group, says all their staff play an important role. But there was a lot of trial and error along the way. It's, it's satisfying. It, it's not easy. There's a huge learning. And the learning is not only on their part, huge learning on our part as well. But we're learning how to communicate better and all our staff are learning sign language. We've got a few, a couple actually, who have become really, really good. She says many people with a disability in Samoa are being looked after by their families and there is some prejudice. She gives the example of a young weaver who now works for them. She um, was considered sick. So I said, you know, what's wrong with her? And uh, they said, 
she can't speak. She's deaf and she can't speak. And so I said, she's not sick, you know. So I think that's generally how uh, people look at people with disabilities. Mataafa Fa'atinu Utumapu from the disability advocacy group NOLA agrees, saying there's still a lot of stigma surrounding people with disability. It is not a common thing and employment rate of persons with disabilities here is very, very low in comparison to that of persons with no disabilities. It's stigma and discrimination, but though it's progressing, it's still happening with the lack of resources and awareness also to support them. She says awareness and inclusion should start at a young age and ideally at home. The attitude of parents and siblings and as well as family members have mm. to change. Blessing you with a, with a kid with a disability is not a result of any curse because that then leads to some families hiding them and not being able to take them to schools. It's projects such as these, they hope, that will lead to more understanding and inclusion in the future. For farmer Yulai, the plans for his future are clear. My plan for the future still uh, recommend them for uh, asking and request them for their help for uh, some materials. Make it easy for me to continue with, uh, my, my farming. That is Dubrovka Volatile with that report. Now history was made with all members of Tuvalu's parliament uniting to pass a new constitution of Tuvalu Bill. One of the key figures behind the constitution reform is former Foreign Minister Simon Kofi. And he joins us now live from Tuvalu with that, Mr Kofi. Talofa and Fakafitai for being with us. Welcome to the show. Talofa, thank you for having me. Yeah, look, firstly, congratulations on getting this bill passed. Why was there a need, to, though, to change the constitution? Uh, was there anything wrong with the old one? Mm-hmm. Well, the um, the last time we had a, um, a major review of the constitution was in uh, 1986. And um, obviously there have been issues over, over time uh, around government stability, um, conflicts of... Uh, you know, culture and rights. And so these these are things that have been uh, um, happening over the years. And um, in 2016, the, the then government uh, decided to, to review uh, the, the, the constitution, look, looking at ways we can improve the uh, stability of governance and, and, and also, you know, just, just open the, the discussions to to the people and to see what, um, what changes they need to, 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 to make. And so, um, eight years on, and then we finally managed to to complete that work and um, pass the constitution. The the changes actually touches upon key thematic areas um, such as statehood, governance, stability, judicial reforms, tra- traditional authority, and rights and and and, and culture. And Mr. Koffer, I would like to know, you had, obviously there was a committee that was created and you would have gone around uh, your island nation there to get feedback from the community. How did that process go? Uh, it went very well and I think it's probably one of the um, best part of, of this this work that we've done is, is actually travelling to the to the Alta Islands and, and sitting down and talking with people and hearing their, their perspective and, and their views on, on the constitution and, and things that are that are important uh, to to, to Um 
as I said, this work actually started in 2016. Uh, at the time, I was um, the, the senior magistrate, and I was actually supporting the committee at the time, um, which consisted of all members of parliament. Uh, unfortunately, it was not passed at the end of the that the, the parliamentary term in, in 2019. Uh, but then we we you know but back then we've we've made you know we've done uh, consultations we went around the islands twice in fact uh, so yeah and now that it has actually passed the line I mean what does having a new constitution now mean for Tuvalu I think this uh, new constitution um, better reflects the the values of Tuvalu. Um, I think it, it also uh, strengthens the stability of, of governance, uh, improves, um, uh, I guess, it's just the overall governance and, and the independence of the judiciary. Uh, I think it's also um, a more inclusive constitution and, um, you know, deeply rooted in, in, in culture. Are you able to maybe elaborate a little bit more on what those values are? Yes, well, um, in uh, in Tuvalu, we're predominantly a community-based society, like like uh, other Pacific Island countries, and so we we you know we value um, values such as respect, uh, cooperation, uh, consensus building. Those are some of the values that are reflected in the constitution. But we've uh, we've also I believe we've lost Mr. Coffey there for a moment. We will work on getting him back, uh, but we'll head to some music right now. Well, welcome back to Pacific Beat. We were speaking with uh, Tuvalu MP, uh, Mr. Kofi. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, we were just talking about some of the values that you were elaborating on. Yeah. If you don't mind repeating, please. Yeah, I mean, as, as I said, Tuvalu is uh, predominantly a community-based society, and um, we, we value um, respect, um, consensus-building, cooperation, uh, values that I that focus on the the, the collective, the collective interest, uh, and so in this review we we've introduced a uh, a charter of duties and responsibilities, uh, and we've highlighted the um, some of the the core uh, duties and responsibilities for parents, for children, and and these actually help uh, the court understand the context in Tuvalu, uh, because we feel that the you know, the, the 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 source of anyone's right is is the responsibility of another person, and so we wanted a constitution that that speaks to responsibilities and emphasizes uh, those core principles and underpins our way of life. Uh, you had said earlier that back in 2019 that it wasn't able to be passed, and obviously change can be hard. So, was there any resistance again to this bill? No. Uh, you know, as, as I um, gave an update on, on social media, uh, we had the a unanimous uh, support from, from Parliament. So every member of Parliament that was present uh, voted in, in support of it. So I think that speaks uh, to, you know, to, to, the, to the unity and, and the, the support from, from the people, which is reflected in how the, the MPs voted. 
And you've obviously said that it will accurately reflect the needs and aspirations of your Tuvalu people. So will this help stabilise the socio-economic and political challenges of Tuvalu? Yes, uh, I, I think there are key provisions in there that, that uh, go towards that. I mean, I mentioned earlier about uh, statehood. We've, we've uh, kind of redefined uh, what statehood is in, in, in our own perspective. Uh, we're saying that Tuvalu statehood is is permanent, regardless of the impacts of, of climate change. As you know, um, you know, under international law, there's general, general reference that uh, in order for you to exist as a state, you need a, a physical territory. And so because of the, the impacts of climate change, we're saying that uh, this statehood is, is permanent, regardless of what happens in the future. You're listening into Pacific Beat on ABC Pacific. I'm Aggie Dubol speaking to Tuvalu MP Simon Goffey about the passing of the new Constitution of Tuvalu Bill 2023. Uh, while I've got you here, Mr. Coffee, you have actually been a champion fighting against climate change. And Australia wants to host the 2026 COP UN Climate Talks. Do you think having it in the Pacific region will actually help? I think it would help if, if uh, you know, if Australia um, kind of weaves in some of the uh, cultural uh, approaches in terms of Talanoa, um, trying to to reach consensus and and focusing on these values that I've been been talking about. I think if Australia really uh, embraces those concepts in the way they conduct this uh, the COP meeting, I think that would go uh, a long way in 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 uh, expressing our way of of uh, doing things here in the Pacific. Now, you've been a Minister of Justice, Communication, Foreign Affairs. Uh, you know, you're a lawyer by profession, absolute climate change activist. What really does hold or what's the future for you at the moment? Well, scientists are saying that we're, we're heading for uh, a worst case scenario. And I think we've, you know, we've been disappointed over the years uh, in the failure of uh, countries to take stronger climate action. But I think the, the focus for us uh, is, is to really prepare for that worst case scenario and, and and look at ways to to appeal to the to the to the wider public to um, you know to to take action and to put pressure on their leaders. And you've also actually got elections coming up in Tuvalu. What are your ambitions for that? Yeah, we have uh, general elections coming up in uh, January of, of next year. Um, well, I'm, I'm hopefully I, I, I get back in, and then um, you know because there there is no party system here in, in Tuvalu. We all come in as, as independent, so it depends on the the people that that come in and and how we can uh, work together and try and form a coalition to form a new government. I do finally want to ask. I know that you had given a speech. I want to backtrack a little bit because you gave a speech at COP27 where you had said that possibly in regards to climate change, Tuvalu has no choice but to have. Uh, become the world's first digital nation. Is that still your view? Yes, I, I think uh, preparing for the worst case scenario is something that uh, we we need to do. And and you know the the longer we we leave it, um, I think it's it's important as a as a government to to have uh, that that ready. And and as I said, it's all part of of our initiative to to get this recognition of of our statehood as as being permanent. And the, the digital nation is, is a framework uh, that demonstrates to the world that we can still exist as a, as a state and fulfill all our obligations to, to the international community, but also to our people. Mr. Coffey, I do want to say thank you for your time this morning. Really appreciate you being able to speak with us.
Thank you very much. No worries. That, of course, is Tuvalu MP Simon Coffey. While same-sex marriage has been legal in Australia since 2017, in the Pacific it is a different story. In Fiji, poet Peter Sibeli was part of the group that formed the country's first gay rights lobby. He also went on to deliver workshops to the police and military about gay rights. ABC Radio Australia's Bobby McCumber asked Peter what was happening in Fiji when the lobby started in 2000. My God, crazy, crazy thing. So Bill 1 of 2000, which was the first bill of 2000, was the Labour government that just won. The first thing they wanted to do was contravene the right to sexual orientation in the Constitution. I mean, now I think they were just trying to appease the Methodists because the Methodists were were protesting um, because they loathed the right to sexual orientation. And so we were all caught up in the in in sending in our, sub, our written submissions and we're waiting for the open call of the subcommittee for this change in the constitution when the coup happened in 2000. So the whole country was come had come to a standstill. And the only people organizing and doing any kind of work was the NGOs. And so it was about being you know, active in a space that was now militarized. And what had happened to those proposed constitutions when the military decree came into effect because we went under military dictatorship because as a, you know, as we moved towards the next elections or whatever, at the time, um, they had adopted those proposed changes to the constitutions and they were part of this new decrees that we were living under. Um, it was strange, you know, it was the year 2000 and that I was all part of that group of women that had also gave birth to with Sharon Rolls and had created the the Peace Vigil, which was a place for people to come and pray together. But really it was just a way to organize. We could only get the permit to, to, to gather um, in the form of a, of a Peace Vigil. But it really was about activism and organizing. It was crazy. How much choice did you have in being an activist? You know, now they were my friends, you know, and they're like, hey, we should do this. Let's do this. And yeah, I think if I had other different friends, I would not have been an activist. I don't think I had a choice. Also, too, yeah. it was, you know, like at the time it was like, you know, stand up and be counted. This is what's right. And you continued that advocacy work, uh, eventually running workshops for police and military. Can you tell me how yeah. you got into that? Again, you know, we were just young. And then just doing the work, which is being in the scene, being counted and calling out what's wrong. And then Shamima Ali from the Women's Crisis Centre contacted me and asked me to do, they were doing these gender sensitizing human rights workshops with um, the military and the police. And she had a spot for the need for, the, the need for equal rights for gay people. And then um, she said, do you want to do the session? I said, yeah, let's do the session. And it was another one of those typical, you know, super Peter moments. I forgot about it. And it was that, that week. And I went out the night before and got really, really drunk. And then, and I was preparing my whole presentation. I was going to use the, the, you know, the human rights kind of language. And my presentation was going to look like this. And there was going to be eight slides and la, la, la. And then um, I woke up and my phone rang. It was back in the day. It was those little small block Nokia phones, the one that we played snakes on with a flashlight. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, hey, Peter, you ready for your session? Your session's on at 11. I was like, oh, my God, of course I'm ready. But I wasn't ready. And I just got changed <laughs> and I ran down there. And when I got there, I was like, hey, you ready to do your session? And yeah, I'm ready. They're like, where's your laptop and your presentation? I was like, what? And they're like, you know, where's your presentation? And I was like, oh. 
oh my gosh, um, well, I don't have it. And I said, oh, well, you know, you're, you're on now um, in the next 10 minutes. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I ran to the toilet and sat down at a little notebook and I was like, okay, just tell the story. Just tell my story and then tell the story of how I ended up in the movement and the need for this kind of work. And I did it. And I told my story and what it's like to grow up here, my parents' part, this whole thing about living with fear, and then talked about what we were doing at the Sexual Minorities Project, which was the first little lobby group. That's what it was called. And um, and I just remember just speaking completely openly. Part of it was just the alcohol still running through my body. Part of it was just silly bravado that I had at the time. And then it, but, you know, there was this moment, like, in it, like, I, I felt connected. Like, you know, you know, when you're standing in the, in the room talking to people that you know that there's resonance and I felt that but I didn't dare look up I looked uh, looked down I looked above everybody's heads and just kept on going and then when I took the questions there was all these questions about you know are you scared you're going to go to hell all these things and I was like no because the Bible also says these things and then just and then just talked it through and kept it bringing it back to everyday living like yes you know of course in the Bible it says all these things but we have to live with each other every day beyond the text of the Bible and what that means to people. And then when I finished the conversation and I was walking off stage, this man that was standing in front with this kind of like a, his chest full of medals walked up towards me and then he reached out and he embraced me. And I remember just hugging him and like, and in my brain I'm thinking, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And then I remember going to the bathroom and then leaving immediately. And then Ashimi, when I'm calling me later, say, hey, the session was really, really good. And then it's giving me all the feedback. And that's how that whole thing was born. And that was Fijian poet and gay rights activist Peter Sibeli speaking with Radio Australia's Bobby McCumber. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look back at our main stories today. Donga's Prime Minister Siasi Sovaleni has defeated a motion of no confidence, but his opponents, like opposition MP Biveni Bugalasi's proper process was not followed. We went through I, I, I just The fact that we were not allowed to debate on that issue is a, is a, is a, is a disappointment, disappointment for me. And Tuvalu has passed a new constitution. MP Simon Goffey says a new day for his nation and in his line with the concept of a digital nation. I think uh, preparing for the worst case scenario is something that uh, we, we need to do. And, and you know, the, the, the longer we, we leave it, um, I think it's, it's important as a, as a government to, to have uh, that, that ready. And, and as I said, it's all part of, of our initiative to, to get this recognition of, of our statehood as, as being permanent. Well, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. I'll be back next week at 6am. I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat.